This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Robert A.F. Thurman. He's a recognized worldwide authority on religion and spirituality, Asian history, world philosophy, Buddhist science, uh, and uh, a, a student of, or an expert on, the uh, Dalai Lama. And uh, he um, has traveled worldwide. He's taught at Amherst College. He's taught at Columbia University. He has his bachelor's, master's, and PhD from Harvard University, and we are thrilled to have him on today. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on, Robert. Uh, thank you, Dennis. It's nice to be with you both. Uh, Bob, if we may call you that, um, sure. you have a rich and uh, well-known uh, life as a scholar and spiritual practitioner. Um, Maybe for the sake of our audience, can you tell us uh, your origin story? How did you get connected to uh, Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama? And what uh, excited you to go get PhD in all this? Uh, well, um, okay, I'll try to do a really brief version. Um, I uh, never accepted um, monotheistic belief. And uh, although formerly my, the family was Presbyterian, but they never went to church, actually, but they sent me at some point. <laughs> and uh, I always argued with the pastor from early as I can remember. Actually, my mother told me when I became a Buddhist monk, she should have known that apparently I kicked over the little little font thing that they baptize you with. I was having a fit at the time, and I kicked it over, drenched the priest's uh, white cassock or whatever you call it. And uh, he was irritated and apparently strained a few drops out from his cassock onto my flailing feet, apparently. <laughs> and uh, she never told me the story until I became a monk, Buddhist monk, you know. But then I got to like Christianity from having been um, from the Dalai Lama's constant push to be all religious and not to feel one is better than the other and all that, which I finally really completely swallowed. They agreed to. And, and uh, it took a while to really have it sink in since I enjoyed Buddhism very, very much. I definitely think I was poor in my life doing that. And um, um, then I was lucky at, at Harvard in my, I think, uh, junior, uh, between junior and senior years, I lost an eye. And um, in a garage accident, which was lucky because I was a bit reckless as a driver, I raced a little bit and this and that. And um, so that gave me a midlife crisis at 21 <laughs> or 20 and uh, 20, 21. And so then I decided to take seriously my Nietzsche, Herman Hesse, uh, some beginning Buddhist readings and go find uh, the Dharma in India in 62 and um, broke up with my wife and and new daughter. Reluctantly, originally, I thought to take them along. It wasn't that completely Siddhartha-oriented, but they didn't want to go, so then it would work up. So um, then um, eventually, you know, spent a year traveling pre-hippie time to India through the Muslim world and to the Greek Christian monastics and so on. And um, then found out nobody knew anything about Buddhism in India except the Tibetans who had just escaped themselves 
uh, and uh, then I really got into that, got a job there. But when my father died and was getting started with that, and then my father passed away in New York, and I had to go back and met a Mongolian Lama, which is a real start, who was living in New Jersey, of all places, short distance from New York. And he really introduced me to the, the meat of the Dharma, the reality of it. It's really something I loved. I was so happy. And, and after a year or so, a year and a half of working with him, rather arduously and ardently, as they say, um, he took me himself to India, introduced me to Dalai Lama, and then I had a year and a half there. And that's when I became a monk and so on. The old Mongolian said I shouldn't be a monk. In the Tibetan system, it's a permanent thing, not a temporary, like Thailand or something. And it would be embarrassing for me later, and I wouldn't listen, and I bugged him all the time. So finally, that's why he took me to see Dalai Lama. But then he told Dalai Lama, don't make him a monk. He was sincere. He wants to be, and he's a good student, and blah, blah, but practitioner. But he's just not, his karma is not there, and he won't stay as a monk. And uh, Dalai Lama <clears throat> listened, so he t made me wait a while, but then he did have me ordained. And um, and then, as true to prophecy, a year or two later, I quit <laughs> and uh, resigned and um, fell in love with a second wife, and who became a second wife, who we've been with ever since, had another bunch of children, and this and that, trying to keep it together. And then going back, getting the PhD was that's only there's no monastery for a Buddhist, Mahayana Buddhist in the U.S. And uh, at that time, nothing. And there's a little something here and there now, but really still no real American Buddhist monastery that's really truly uh, like American. You know, American Dharma Center leaders are all X this and X that. And, um, and so the university looked like a good monastery where you can get a livelihood and support a family and keep studying and incidentally teach people as you go, you know. So that's what I'm still doing. I retired from that now, and I'm teaching a lot online, and, mm -hmm. and at Menla, I and I around when I travel around, which in the old days, post and post COVID, perhaps I'll travel a bit again. Yeah. So that's the origin story. And, that's great. Uh, the great story. It was when I remembered some previous lives, and mm -hmm. uh, really was confirmed in all of that after a few few decades. <laughs> and what did I ask uh, Robert? Uh, What's that? I wanted to ask you, you're an academic, you have a tremendous academic background, uh, but your attraction uh, to, to Buddhism, and especially talking about uh, Buddha, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, were you, uh, when and did you at some point uh, get involved in the practices of Tibetan Buddhism? And uh, what, were you more driven by your intellectual curiosity about what Buddhism had to offer or was it more experiential? You were looking for a deeper inner experience. Well, yeah. Well, I don't really separate the intellectual and the experiential, and both of them were what I was really into, and um, I find them mutually reinforcing rather than contrasting. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a, that made me an outlier in the old days, uh, with especially since Zen was the biggest form of Mahayana Buddhism, which sometimes would even deny being Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I think you guys are very much from that tradition. And um, there was a big anti-learning thing in Zen back in the 60s and 70s. But I think now they have libraries at all the Zen centers and they at least study ethics. And they think that 
maybe the you know the great doubt, the mountain of doubt has to break it has to land on top of your head before you can break through to some kind of satori. I think they realize you have to use your intelligence as well as your concentration. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and, um, now, so I think it's, I mean, I'm still probably there's some hard liners on no thinking, but um, I think the, the simplistic thing that, of course, full experience always was and is for every ordinary person even free of conceptuality. And that's and, and is beyond conceptuality, even just to eat an apple, like what really happened. Even a poet can't completely capture it. And um, certainly a scientist can't with an analysis of the chemistry and so forth. But um, so everyone knows that in a way. But the relationship between the two, the intellectual understanding leading to the deeper, more, more liberative, more emancipatory experience, I think, is now getting to be more focused on, let's say, if not widely understood. And that's been kind of my life's work in my my original book uh, was um, Central Philosophy of Tibet, Reason and Enlightenment in the Central Philosophy of Tibet. And uh, from based on Tsongkhapa's great writing on the central way on Madhyamaka. And um, uh, so I that's very much my shtick, if you will, is connecting the two. And even nowadays, by the way, I have I have a new thing, fairly recent that I didn't really think of before, where I argue that um, all dualities are transcendent, of course, in the full experiential realization of reality that is enlightenment, and that means that the duality between non-conceptual and conceptual, between direct intuitive experience and and uh, intellectual conceptually mediated experience, that duality also gets reconciled. And it gets collapsed where the two become one thing. And yeah. I think that I think that can be defended that position and that experience actually, because you know when you experience clear light of the void, since you are the void, you know where is the I seeing itself? You know, where is the mind knowing itself when the mind is what it is? You know, is its object? In other words, when subject and object merge. How do you know the object? Well, inference. You you infer that thing that because you are a completely relativistic being, and ultimate nirvana is samsara, and the absolute reality is the relative, which is non-duality, and vice versa. You know, samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara. So in a way, you have both, but you have neither. Um, how do you know it? You be it, but do you know it? Well, of course, when we think no subject object. So when you know and are the object as well as subject, what kind of knowing is that? They say in the Indian text, the knowing by the root of non-knowing. <laughs> yeah. I think you guys deal with that in Zen very well, actually. Mm-hmm. So the person, the person who runs around, say something meaningful about emptiness or get out. And then they try to say something meaningful, and the guy breaks his leg. Mm-hmm. So, so that means that that means that it's not something you can possess, you know. Like I own the experience of enlightenment. I think you 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 are truly an open being, and you you embrace that, and you don't privilege that, and you're and your absolute is being nice to people. I think. 
Now, you've just raised a ton of things I want to ask you. <laughs> but, but since you, you're right, talking well, we about... We don't have that much time on a, a podcast, so uh, but why not? You, since you raised this issue of reconciling subject and object and uh, knower and known, um, one of the interesting things about uh, people discovering the Eastern spiritual traditions is this... Um, separation people make between the Hindu tradition and the Buddhist tradition and, yeah. or, around Atman and Anatman yeah, that's and, or, and, and between emptiness and fullness. And I see them as very much the same thing. I was curious. How do you see that? Oh, that's a, that's a really easy. You know, I consider that the... Um, Neti neti procedure of the Upanishads, some Upanishads, mm. and um, through which they come to this Paramatma experience, is you could call it the conservative wing of the Buddhist Buddhist revolution of really rejecting the ascribed uh, Brahminical monistic um, you know caste identity. That is sort of a fixed thing, where you're fixed in your caste, you know, because you are you're the son of a carpenter, you're a carpenter, son of a merchant, you're a merchant, son of a Brahmin, you're a Brahmin, etc. Woman, daughter of this, and you are just a child-bearing illiterate slave, and um, you're not supposed to. That's your fixed identity. So Buddha's realization of ultimate identitylessness is shatters that social also the rigidity of that social structure. And um, so the Upanishads are trying to like incorporate that thing, but yet keep it sort of friendly to the caste system. So they say, well, yeah, you're, well, okay, yeah, you don't have your, your Brahmin self if you're, if, or your Kshatriya self, or, but kind of you do have your Shudra self because we're not going to talk to you about, about, about Tattva Mazi, you know, Hey, you're not a tatva mazi. You're not the same as Brahman, no, because you got to bring the, you got to clean the toilet. So, 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 um, so that's what I call a conservative wing of incorporating the shattering, world transcending selflessness realization, which of course uh, is even in that early phase. Buddha purposely wanted to align even Buddhism with a dualistic idea, you know, forbidding the Mahayana to be taught for 400 years except esoterically, uh, because he wanted people to have a place to break out from the caste system. And the non-duality thing would have led to people rationalizing the castes as well. It's all nirvana, so you can be a nirvanic untouchable. Mm. You, know, you can be a nirvana. Excuse me, my wife. Uh, just to say, I'm doing recording online, Judy. I'm glad you're here. Bye. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so... <laughs> She just wants to let me know she's here, really. So I have to pick it up. So, um, so the thing is that um, um, uh, the, the the real thing is the shattering thing, which the Buddhists and the Jains and a bunch of other shramanas who were anti-Vedist, um, basically, um, an anti-caste system, got into, and Buddha being, of course, the most radical of them. And so then later in Buddhism, they have what they call the expression in Sanskrit, nairatmiya paramatma, the supreme self of selflessness. And the supreme self, arguing guys, you know, who wanted to keep that atma 
because of that then connecting them back to the scriptive caste system, uh, they, um, they created a, a kind of thing that you identify with a vast spacious divinity where, you know, when they forced been debating with the Buddhists and the institutions of the debate were all the Buddhist monastic universities for a thousand years, uh, they, they, um, they say, well, yeah, well, or my real self doesn't even notice that I just had an instant of visual consciousness and a thought consciousness and a smell consciousness and my consciousness itself totally changed. That's all. Hmm. Uh, my other one is like a stone, they even say. Some of the sankhas at some point in the debate, he said, I don't mind. I have a consciousness like a stone. It doesn't react to anything, but yet it's still mine. So that's ridiculous, of course, since it's non-relational. How can it react to anything? It doesn't react, you know. And um, it's just uh, it just makes them feel comfortable heading there. But it has also a, a, one unfortunate level at the high practice stage. In very in very, you know, foundational. I never say earliest. That's a Western projection, in my opinion, or it's coming from Sri Lanka. But in the in the foundational level of Buddhism, which is therefore allowed to be dualistic. The Buddha very carefully planted a powerful hint that states of absolute, seeming absoluteness, and he listed four of them as attainable by a great yogin or yogini, infinite space, infinite consciousness, absolute, nothing, not, nothing whatsoever, and beyond consciousness and unconsciousness, these four bodiless states which were like vast states of vastness of different mm -hmm. colors and more or less. And he clearly said, those are not nirvana. Mm. They are not. Interesting. And that was to indicate something that is a danger to the Paramatma devoted person, that they're going to get into the idea ahead of time that nirvikalpa samadhi, a state of complete isolation from all relationship, is the absolute and is like a great thing and that's the final escape from suffering meanwhile ignoring the fact that if it's a state that you enter and that has a boundary and you time when you didn't enter it it's a relational place it may be a mental place but it's a place and in fact you can even say from a radical non-dualist zen mahayana point of view it's the ultimate kind of psychosis because you think that you're playing, you're all alone there. Like nobody can bother you. Do you know what I mean? You can't have any negative PR if you're a narcissistic lunatic, and you because you're, you don't even have a body. Nobody can bump into you. You don't. You only have the sense of sound. They say in the Abhidharma, in that formless realms, you only can hear sound. You have no other. You know, somehow the hearing is still available, though you don't have ears. But sound can affect you, maybe just the vibration, your super subtle energy field, virtual body, let's say, but non-physical body. So, so um, I forgot why I got into this, but <laughs> idea. Why, why did we get into this? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, therefore, the Paramatma and the so-called idea that Hinduism and Buddhism are different is just simply ridiculous. Very you know, good. It's totally ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And Buddhists, for example, if you think Buddhists are anti-theists or non-theists, as, as a lot of modern Buddhists do, that's completely false. The, 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 the Pali Canada is full of gods. Right, Buddhists right. simply didn't think there was the one boss who could be blamed for everything. And actually in the Pali, there's a Pali Sutta where 
when Yogi asks Brahma, who is the creator at that time, no Shiva and Vishnu are not on the horizon yet, and he asks him, like, how'd you do it? How'd you make the world? And he says, I didn't make it. <laughs> I just showed up first, and they think I made it, and I'd like you to have Buddha tell them that I'm not responsible for the shit when it happens. Uh, <laughs> Robert, I, I wanted to ask you, while we have you, uh, in, in 1986, uh, you created the Tibet House uh, U.S. Yes. Uh, at the request of the Dalai Lama. Now, yes. is, the, is the function of the Tibet House uh, solely for giving people a, a deeper intellectual and experiential understanding of deeper realms uh, of reality? <clears throat> or is it ha have a social function in uh, uplifting and uh, creating changes in the world that are, are more beneficial? Uh, yes, well, well, yes, the, the latter, but, but, but in a specific way. In other words, following the Dalai Lama's idea that the way that Buddhism can be of help to people who are not Buddhist and culture where it says not Buddhism is not the original pattern or, you know, a, a, the Buddhist revolution hasn't happened in a major way, that, that the Buddhists should not try to make them Buddhists, but they should offer the services. So what Tibet House is devoted to is to help people discover the beauty of Tibetan Buddhist culture. And um, in the process of doing that, seeing how that it has all kinds of aspects, like a little more compassion orientation and nonviolent orientation, imperfect as all human artifacts are, but you know, wisdom orientation, and it has the preservation of this massive Indian science from the Buddhist Indian, Indian Buddhist side, especially Mahayana Sanskrit Buddhist side, where they developed the Mahayana Abhidharma, what you could call, including the Vajrayana and the Vajrayana Abhidharma, although they don't use the term in respect for the foundational level. But they don't use it much, they, a little bit they do, but not much. But the point is, that in process, then we offer that, but not in the terms of subscribing them to Buddhism or just like we're not, you know, we, we're not asking them to become Tibetans, but we want them to see there is a kind of culture and of a, of a, of a culture of a country, a nation that was a big conqueror, you know, had a Pentagon, you know, had armor and had cavalry and, and, and conquered way and even conquered China at one time conquered the Silk Route, conquered parts of Bengal and Nepal and Kashmir and, and all the way into Afghanistan. And, uh, and yet they gave that up and they became highly educated in nonviolence and no money pay me home and love and compassion. And they remain a kind of bunch of rascals and like their sort of monkey father was, but they, um, and yet they're kind of nice rascals and they try to be, and so there's a lot of heart, like the, Tibetan refugee nannies coming out of Queens are all the rage up and down Fifth Avenue <laughs> and, and Madison Avenue because they're nice with kids. You know, they may have their own too, and they may not have their own, but they are sort of they are kind of nice people. And that meditation, the compassion Tibetan compassion meditation, which they get from India, that all beings are my mother in some life or another. When they look at people, they don't see an alien like a Chinese, like an uneducated or non-television addicted Chinese. In the old days, villager might have, when they see a weirdo with blonde hair and watery looking blue eyes and a blotchy pale pink skin, they don't see like a two-legged rabbit. <laughs> they see someone who was their mom in a previous life. And so this makes them popular, you see. 
So the, right. all the, in other words, the level of sort of Buddhist sensibility that has been in, incorporated in the Tibetan culture makes it lovable. And in that, that's what our mission is to, to introduce that. And that's why we have a medicine, a sort of Tibetan medicine oriented, although not exclusivist, a place in the Catskills that someone gave us but because we wanted to practice healing the way the Tibetans are into it as an adjunct in part of the complementary medicine scene. And we and we you know we have exhibitions and definitely we want to appeal to people on emotional, aesthetic, you know, music, you know, whatever. And and the Buddha Dharma, like meditating and feeling a bit better, you know, that's a healing thing. That's a thing and you can do it and re remain a a uh, 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 Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or whatever you are, you know. I and, would, uh, or what Dalai Lama wants to say: remain whatever your grandmother is. Mm. So she doesn't. So <laughs> she doesn't freak out, you know. Therefore, we welcome the Jew boo, the Chris boo. We don't have much. We have a few Hindus. We have Mubus. We're very short on. <laughs> They'll, they'll, they, they'll come in they, time. Uh, they, they, they make it dangerous, you know, the, the apostasy is still dangerous in that setting, you know. Bob, um, I, I want to let our listeners know that if they're ever in New York, um, if, we're ever oh, allowed, if we're ever allowed to travel again, a visit to Tibet House is a, a great experience. Last time I was there, there was an uh, exhibit of some incredible tankas and just beautiful uh, Tibetan art. And uh, yes. so and it's right near Union Square, very convenient. Um, Bob, since you, uh, you've mentioned the Dalai Lama, you've known the Dalai Lama, it seems, for more than 50 years. You probably know him as well as anybody does. You wrote a book called Why the Dalai Lama Matters. Right. So I have two questions. Um, one, why does the Dalai Lama matter? What was that book about? And the other is, over the years, you've known him since he was a young man. He's now in his 80s. You've known mm -hmm. him since you were a young man. Um, has he changed? Have you, have you seen differences in the, the Dalai Lama we've now come to know uh, from the, the Dalai Lama who you knew uh, 50 years ago? Yes. Well, I would say yes. I've even written yes. I have seen him change, but also I have to acknowledge that, you know, my understanding of him and also depends on how I have changed and mm -hmm. not changed. And my earlier perception of him may have reflected my own ignorance rather than that fundamental change in him. But of course, everybody does change. And um, the thing is, when I first knew him, we were kind of like fellow students. He was six years older, he's like a senior student. And um, when I would ask him about deep things about Buddhism, which I was all gaga about emptiness and so on, he would refer me to elder teachers of his. And because, but not because he couldn't have answered me, but he did it because he was so interested since I spoke Tibetan already when I met him, that uh, he was interested in hearing about different Western kinds of knowledge. You know, he downloaded my sort of Exeter, Harvard, half-assed, knowledge of, of different subjects and topics as much as possible. We had the most fun really talking about things. And it was a lot of fun for me, sometimes making up new words in Tibetan to keep, talk about the superego and things like that. And, uh, you know, Freud and Jung and whatever, and, uh, and different scientific topics. 
although I was a humanities major, you know, it's an English major, but still I could talk a little bit about it. And, um, and we had a lot of fun. And then later, you know, he, he sort of instructed me about things more when his, when his and my elder teachers passed away. And um, although, unfortunately, I was always working here, so I couldn't really go and spend long periods of time with him except for two years in different times, you know, a shorter term than one week, two months, a month or two, you know, on a sabbatical or something. And um, so in our long time, it's been frustrating. Even now I'm retired, but then there's a COVID and then, and then I have to do Tibet House Alive and work online a lot. So I can't just go and drop out and have a little retreat and spend more time with him. And of course, he has so many people needing and wanting him. He may not have even the time to do it. His, his secretaries might triumphantly be able to throw me out after an hour, which they always <laughs> failed to do before and got to be annoyed with me because he would cancel his events because he would be so we would have so much fun because he usually, you know, so he has somebody who wants to worship him. And, you know, because we started in a certain way. Although when he's giving an initiation to me, I am visualizing him in the way that you do, like the Roshi, like representing the Buddha to me in different forms. But when he's off duty of that kind, he, he himself has a resilience where he's just normal. And he doesn't want to be like kowtowed to and messed with it. He wants to talk. He wants some feedback, although he may not be used to the sort of brusque interaction <laughs> and feedback that we used to have. So it's, it's, it's exciting for him, even when we see, I see him nowadays. And say something like we had big arguments about him retiring as head of state mm -hmm. when I because I was arguing that he should keep like a king of Sweden, you know, or king of Norway sort of um, nominal, you know, m mediating role without having to go to any office or deal with you know, all the kind of decisions that he's had a heavy burden of in his life in, in exile. And um, but still, because Tibetans, once they get more into democracy, they're going to be very fractious. They're going to be very divisive and they're going to battle with each other. They do already in exile. Mm. And when they eventually, when the Chinese eventually decide the Communist Party can still survive as a multi-party system like in, in other places, um, then then Tibet can emerge as a democracy and, and a, a mediating figure. So anyway, we had big arguments about it. And, you know, they get heated. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, um, and it's wonderful. I love the guy. He really is the greatest, you know. He really is the best. And, and, and he definitely, one thing I can say, which was Henry Kissinger did him a big benefit personally, although a great harm to Tibet, by kowtowing to the Chinese after Nixon's visit and, uh, and uh, then blocking Dalai Lama from visiting everywhere and representing Tibetans freely and pressuring even India to deny him exits and things like that. And um, But during that period, from around 71 to, to 79, which was a period I was also under servitude of trying to get tenure in, in an American college, which I managed to, but by dint of huge effort. And um, But the Dalai Lama, instead of trying to get tenure somewhere, luckily for him, he had time <laughs> to do real serious retreats and serious uh, tantric practice, practices and serious contemplations. And he really came into a kind of different level of, you know, his kundalini or something, you could say, his sort of field of um, 
of awareness around him and his and his his deeper deepening of his you know because tantra doesn't take you off into some other world it makes you more deep even in your basic you know uh, three refuge understanding you know it it because it's all interwoven every all three vehicles are completely interwoven and um so there was a, i did see a huge gap i didn't see him for those eight years 71 to 79 and um um, he he made a huge leap in his realization manifestation, let's say, of his realization. And he, you know, that that's that that's that you, know, you have to develop this cognitive dissonance tolerating awareness, where yes, you're a reincarnation of Kuan Yin, Kanon, you know, and 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 yet yes, you have to relearn it each life, you know, and especially also because you're there with the humans setting example for them about learning and transforming themselves. And because they're all, we're always transforming. And if we don't push it in a positive way, it tends to lead to addictions and stupidity. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert, I have uh, one last question for you. And that is, this is being taped in September 2020. You have a pandemic. We have uh, a, a lot of change, uh, a lot of people feeling uh, confused. Uh, perhaps a, a time to be more introspective, looking for some deeper meaning in life or whatever. But what advice do you give to uh, people, uh, especially at this time? Okay. Well, that also enables me to answer the second part of your previous question that I lost mm -hmm. track of. Why does he matter now, the Dalai Lama? Because the Dalai Lama is a world leader with no, uh, you know, as they say in Zen, a man of no rank. With, as far as being a physical leader of a nation, but he is a world leader, and he is, in fact, the de facto leader of the old of the whole Tibetan nation, no matter what the Chinese try to pretend. And uh, as far as they're concerned, he's their leader, and yet he advocates nonviolence in situations even of genocidal oppression. He advocates, you know, good humor. He advocates trying to see the silver lining. He advocates, but not to do it by hiding out from the difficulty while facing and being activist in the difficulty and acting. He upholds the possibility we will solve this problem. We will preserve the sustainability of the planet. We will stop the fossil fuel oligarchic um, demons. We will do all that. And, and yet, and every world leader actually who's ever met him has Angela Merkel, you know, it's affected by that and are therefore do a little better job when they lead whatever their country is. Those who, who are the exact opposite when they get in power, we see what's happening. We've been seeing for the last four or five years what the exact opposite. And they, no, no one has quite up to that level. They do have responsibilities that he doesn't. But nevertheless, we see when the opposite happens, how awful it is. And so, and also the leader of a nation that was a militarist nation and demilitarized. And even though they're suffering that by having been invaded and are presently still being genocided by the nasty Chinese communists, they, they are still surviving and they're still happy people, actually. You can go, you can find one in a prison camp and, they, and they're seeing their star. And they'll be, they'll have a glint in their eye and you might, they might crack a joke. You know, they are this extraordinary resilient people. Hmm. They really are. Because they have this, they have this inculcated in their culture, and he's the leader of them, and we all need that example. So that really is the thing. Then the other thing I would recommend as a piece of advice to people is that they read an article by not by me, but by Charles Eisenstein, 
who's that? Which a free article they can find online on his his website Eisenstein, like Einstein with an S E N in the middle, and he wrote a book, an essay a few months ago called "The Coronation," about what we can learn from this adversity, and it is amazing. I have to say, it is truly the Dharma out of the mouth of I don't know what a secular but brilliant and kind and sensitive and compassionate person. I don't believe he's a Anybody, a member of any particular Buddhist group, but I don't really know that. I don't know him yet. Well, I, I hope to. But that essay really turns you around if you're grumbling about being stuck in a lockdown or can't travel or whatever. It's just so fantastic. It really is. And how, in a way, it's Mother Earth's blessing. I mean, I would go maybe further than he would want to say that in spite of the terrible deaths of the people with the underlying conditions, which are that not their fault so much, actually, but the, these are the people that we, the dominant white privileged people, have pushed on them in putting them in bad neighborhoods where they get particles in their lungs and mercury and cadmium. They get terrible food in food deserts where there's no vegetables and so forth. They get, you know, you know terrible schooling. They're all mass incarceration, Jim Crow. I mean, it's just awful. So in spite of that, though, the coronavirus is a blessing to the world in the sense that the, in the environment, if more distorted, is going to be even worse. I, I believe it's coronavirus is a warning against everywhere becoming like California, Portland, I mean Washington and see and and Portland and Oregon right now. And according to Al Gore's thing, which I'm trained in, and which I'm devoted to, Climate Reality Project. By the, but the slide says 2080, that whole West Coast of U.S. will be uninhabitable from drought, mm -hmm. not just you know fires to put out, but uninhabitable, and and that and all those things that you know three four years ago they were saying 2080, 2070 are now all down in the 2040s, late 2030s, if not I mean look at California today, you know. And so the corona, by shutting everything down and making people sit back and think of what am I doing with my life? And, and they can't, and, and that wonderful vision of all those oil tankers in the Gulf not able to pay someone to take the friggin' oil out of their tank. You know, $40 a barrel, they had to pay to get some guy with a, with a big, giant, you know, vulnerable to hurricane, you know, tank to take the, uh, unload their tanker. And so the oil people are scrambling to get into other businesses, to sell off concessions, and uh, they, they're trying to prevent people to know so they can sell it for value, you know. But they, everyone is bailing. A few diehards and a few idiot bankers are still working with stranded assets, but everybody is under, and there's a few countries like Russia under the oligarchs mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia under the oligarchs and Iran under the idiot oligarchs. They, they are still trying to, like, pump it up, you know. But it's it's finished, you know. And that, and corona, it can help us see it. And there's many more disasters heading our way. Famines will be coming. So so that, so that's a – so I really love that. I think people should read the Eisenstein essay, and they should listen to your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> and they should read your books and listen to your podcast. Okay, okay. And, and thank that. you. And thank you for, for thank you so much.
Thank you for uh, all the work you've done and continue to do. And thank you for being with us. Thank you for modeling uh, being a deeply spiritual <laughs> and deeply uh, it, um, scholarly oh, no, and very I mean, real. It's, it's all half-baked, but it's, it's, no, it's, but, all hard, it's hard, heartful, but it's a little half-baked. But, but you keep I'm it real. I'm trying to get there, though. Don't worry. I thank you for Our keeping Lama ordered it real. Me to live <laughs> another 25 years as he promised to live. Oh, and, well, uh, he ordered me to do it, but probably he, I probably, it'd be hard to make it. He might make it. He has a really great white tower practice going for longevity. And he's so great. He might make it. If, yes, if need be, if the Communist Party remains the dictatorship of China, uh, then uh, he has to stay because he has to stay to console his people, he feels. Right. And he will see to it, I think, really. May so then I'm supposed so. to crawl along in the in the wake of that, and I'll try. <laughs> may it be so, and, and okay. may may we learn those lessons you you just pointed to out of Thank this you. crisis. Thank you for talking with me. I appreciate Thank it. You, really. Thank Good you, Bob. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Okay. okay take care, Phil. Thank you. All the best.